Dia gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tuum diarbus, et benedictus fructus ventris tuum, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis, victoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostrae. Amen. Nomine Patris et Filii, Spiritus Sancti, Amen. For the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Brethren in Christ, laudate Jesus Christus in secula. This is Timothy Flanders with the meaning of Catholic. Jesus is King. I'm joined today by Peter Gumley of Vonde Radio. Peter, how you doing, brother? I'm very well, thank you. We over here in England are in the midst of, I think it's lockdown 3.0. So in this time of confinement, what better activity than to dive into the the buoyant seas of Baroque culture. Excellent. So we're going to be speaking today about Baroque civilization versus bourgeois civilization. Very important question. So the topic of bourgeoisie versus Baroque was brought into the American scene by a article that was published, republished by uh, Crisis Magazine by the great Christopher Dawson which was called uh, Catholicism and the Bourgeois Mind, which discussed the contrast in his mind between the Baroque and the Bourgeois, which was controversial to some Catholics. And so we're going to be discussing that. It seems to be one of the big questions in the the past 500 years. And I, I think in many ways gets at the real heart of the Vatican II crisis that we face. So before we get into that, especially for American viewers, I want to define and try to get at what these terms are that we're talking about. So Peter, can you help us understand what is the Baroque? Can you boil down what the Baroque is and boil down what the bourgeois is? Sure. So um, Dawson's essay, despite being written in 1935, I think is still very pertinent to uh, the current situation in Western culture and civilization. Um, And I think first I'll uh, speak to the notion of the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie. Etymologically, it derives from French, uh, from from the, uh, the Bourges, which was the city, which is related to the the German, the Berg, also meaning the town. And from that, we get the word the burger. And in English, it is a man of the borough. So in the feudal system of medieval Christendom, cities were often outside the jurisdiction of, um, of a feudal nobility. They had a unique charter from the king that put them outside the regular hierarchy of the generally agrarian society. So the bourgeois were those that lived in the cities that were under these charters um, and owed no fealty to a particular uh, noble uh, other than the king himself. So the bourgeois therefore became associated uh, or intimately tied to the 
economic activity that took place in the medieval cities, um, there, there was a, a small degree uh, of, uh, you could say, kind of commercial innovation um, and international trade. And this was the activity of the bourgeois. It was the activity of, um, of commerce, uh, transaction, rudimentary forms of finance and banking, um, and in a general sense, being a kind of middleman between uh, the, the production of, of the, the laborer, the peasant, um, and then the, the, uh, the courtly life of the noble and uh, the royals. And I, and I think uh, just again, for viewers, we want to review real quickly the so-called medieval society was essentially those those who fight, which are the nobles, they protect everyone, those who pray, the, the priests and the religious, and then those who work, which are mainly laborers in the field, but there's also craftsmen, essentially, as well. Um, and then, as you mentioned, there's this fealty system, which is where, basically, it's based on villages, your lord is, is the lord of your village, and you owe him fealty. All the hierarchy is an interdependence. Everyone is has rights and duties all the way up to the top, all the way down to the bottom. Uh, the lord is has a duty to the to the lowest peasant. The peasant has a duty to the highest lord, and it's very subsidiarity. You know, your your loyalty is very much your own village, and that's that. Uh, then you may the lord may pay taxes to the king, and he has uh, a duty to fight if the king calls on him to defend the realm. Uh, but as you're describing, then there's also this city, which are very much city-states in a, in a large degree, uh, to, according to the ancient model. And then there's this bourgeois class. And we want to be fair here because, as you, as you mentioned, there is this economic relationship that uh, is very important for the, the craftsman uh, connecting and selling his wares uh, to another city, or he may find a market in another realm, perhaps through the bourgeois, through this merchant. So there is a, an economic opportunity for this craftsman for his own uh, product, for his own family to gain more wealth, perhaps in a different market through this merchant class. But how did the Christian mind view this, this bourgeois and and the fact that he uses money and he essentially trades is his his he's not creating any productive value per se he's not working with manual labor he's essentially working with money how was that viewed at that time well i think with a, a degree of caution and recognition that uh, as simple writes the the love of mammon is at the root of all evil so this this acquisitive um, instinct, the, the money power, had to be kept in, in check, in harmony with the, the needs of uh, society as a whole. And this is a time when the bourgeois was a distinct social type and class. What Dawson identifies in his essay, and many other scholars have remarked upon, is that today we are all bourgeois in the sense that bourgeois culture, the bourgeois mind, the bourgeois standards of life have, have expanded until they now dominate the whole spirit of modern civilization. Um, there, there was a book written by um, an author called David Brooks who described 
what he called Bobos, which were bohemian bourgeois. And he, he said that that is the, uh, the, the kind of class that, that dominates contemporary uh, civilization. And Augusto del Noche, the philosopher, remarked about um, the ostensible Marxist uh, proletarian influence has actually ended up with the Western bourgeoisie being um, the, the triumphant uh, class uh, at the end of history. So that we're all today kind of these administrators in, in the knowledge economy. Um, but I think that I'm not going to be able to really uh, articulate this better than, than uh, Dawson himself does. So I'll just bring up um, his essay here. And he, he remarks that um, there is a difference in how the, um, the laboratories, as you identified, the, the third estate, the, the peasant, and the craftsmen identify, uh, relate to their own economic output uh, and how the bourgeois relate to theirs. So for example, the craftsman is similar to the artist um, and the peasant in having an organic relation to the object of their work. They see in that, uh, that, that product um, an extension or a part of themselves and they identify themselves with it. Whereas um, the merchant, for example, is external to um, his, own, uh, his own economic output, uh, so that everything that he deals with in exchange is measured exclusively in terms of money. He has a kind of quantitative uh, outlook on the world as opposed to a qualitative, um, because he was this middleman between the producer and the consumer. And uh, if you want to, to uh, consider how the medieval mind looked at uh, the, this, um, this social type, uh, St. Thomas, Saint Thomas um, cautioned uh, the life of business. Um, he said that business considered in itself has a certain baseness, turpitudo, inasmuch as it does not of itself involve any honorable or necessary end. Uh, so the bourgeois is essentially a money maker at once its servant and its master. Uh, and the development, this is what Dawson says, the development of his social ascendancy shows the degree to which civilization and human life are dominated by the money power. So sorry for that, that was a rather uh, extended answer to your question. That's, you know, that's great. I, there was something that I've been thinking about, and that's actually the words of Lord Acton, ironically, and he's, his famous dictum is, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, it seems that the medieval mind would agree with that in its structure of society, very subsidiarity. The local lord is really all powerful in that sense. The, the king has very little power. Uh, the kings in those days... Uh, did not have a fraction of what a modern president has in four years. Uh, and so I think it seems that in our discussion, though, uh, the medieval mind would add to the power corrupts dictum. They would say that money is power. And so therefore money corrupts and absolute money corrupts. Absolutely. Would you agree with that as a framework? 
Yes, I, I think that that's um, that, that's very lucid. Um, certainly, they would um, that they would identify any kind of accumulation of wealth as, as a spiritual danger, which it is, um, and and also that the the primacy putting the the, the primacy of uh, wealth as as a higher social value obviously ignores the life of the spirit and the the uh, essence of the medieval imagination of the gothic imagination is uh, the primacy of of god uh, and therefore uh, the primacy of transcendence within man's life so it, it wouldn't it, a lot of water has gone under the bridge for us to kind of get to this place um, where where money uh, the money power uh, predominates so largely in uh, in our culture and society yeah it seems to me that the medieval cathedrals and we'll get into the baroque now in just a minute but the medieval cathedrals really tell us all we need to know about the medieval mind because especially as an american in america we have very few cathedrals that are a fraction of the medieval cathedrals in, in europe uh, at all i mean even the largest cathedrals in new york city the oldest cathedrals in new york city do not even hold water compared to any of the great cathedrals in the western europe so especially american viewers if you ever go to europe just go to any cathedral uh it's really quite uh stunning and you know these these cathedrals were raised over hundreds of years by peasants peasants and and guildsmen and craftsmen and stone cutters and over generations and they, they put everything they they died without seeing the end of it they were so committed to raising these monuments for the greater glory of god and to be fair of course certain certain villagers had you know maybe had a prideful motive to try to be better than chatrey or whatever you know be better than the other city but there was an overall yeah there was an overall culture there was an overall cultural momentum where everyone wanted to make something like this, which is, is quite telling, I think. Um, but that is something, how is this all transferred into the Baroque culture? How do you define the Baroque culture from here? Yes, yeah, so we, we could record a whole broadcast on um, the Gothic age. And uh, you're quite right that these magnificent temples uh, are are collective are the results of a collective social effort that completely integrated uh, to the extent one can uh, visit somewhere like Chartres Cathedral in my mind one of the most beautiful churches in the world and not find a single signature or means to identify who was responsible the the architect the glazier you know uh, the the stonemason for these marvels because everything was for the greater glory of God. The whole cult of the artist was, a, was a, an, an innovation of the Renaissance. Um, and the Baroque coming as it does after the Renaissance, um, quite simply uh, uh, is the artistic expression of the, of the counter-reformation, of the Catholic reformation, uh, the Catholic revival of the, the later 16th and then into the 17th centuries. Um, it, it is the, 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 the Council of Trent uh, in material culture and in musical culture. Um, and 
what it does um, is synthesize the earlier Renaissance humanism with the, the tradition of medieval Catholicism, uh, which has been revived by the counter-revolution, uh, sorry, the counter-reformation. Uh, but it is actually really closer to the art of the Middle Ages, to the Gothic, than to the rational idealism of the Renaissance, because it employs the same symbolism and it actually resembles Gothic. If you look at architecture, for example, it resembles Gothic architecture uh, to, to quite a, a strong degree, especially the later flamboyant Gothic. Um, and within both is this, this striving for infinity. Um, and what it takes from the Renaissance is to situate the drama of salvation at the heart of human experience. So if there's any kind of criticism um, of the Gothic is to say that the awe-inspiring transcendence that it materializes um, somewhat neglects the, um, the, the drama of, the, uh, of salvation taking place within the human spirit. And that the Baroque looks to the Renaissance humanism and borrows from that the focus on um, the, the human spirit, but then marries it with the, the singular devotion, faith and focus on uh, divinity from the Gothic. And with this expresses a passion um, that I think we can, uh, we, we can see is clearly living out what our Lord said in Matthew, where he said, you are the light of the world, the city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. And the Baroque look to radiate this light. That's excellent. So it, it seems to that... Um there is that Western Christendom of the 1200s, 300s is very much, very much uh, lo kind of low life expectancy. People are thinking about death a lot. People are dying in the 20s and 30s. There's plague. You know, people are, are raising to the transcendence, especially, and, and, and thinking about death and the afterlife, which is motivating a great deal of, of good. But uh, with the Renaissance, there is there is this focus on the the pagan roman past which is just uh totally focused on this life there's a, there's very little th thought about the afterlife so it, it seems that the baroque really takes the good in both of those and sort of combines them into one cultural movement would you agree with that kind of summarization absolutely yeah that it, it's the redemption of the renaissance and interestingly we come at this uh, both in, in uh, Great Britain and then in, from the United States, we, we, we uh, subconsciously have a Protestant point of view in, in the sense of we live in Protestant countries. And Protestant historians have tended to see the Baroque culture as a sort of secularized version of medieval Catholicism, but it's actually the desecularization of the Renaissance and a reassertion of the power of 
religion over social life. Um, and if I could just make one small point, uh, just a, a small demographic point to, to what you said, uh, certainly, you know, death was, was far more uh, present on the, the horizon of people's lives uh, in the, the ages of which we're speaking. Um, but the, the, the lower avro, uh, overall uh, average uh, lifespan is, is primarily because of the high infant mortality. Um, because that was so high, if someone survived uh, the, those early childhood years, the, the actual chances were that, that people did live into uh, their, their 70s, you know, four score years and 10. Um, it, it wasn't so much of the, you know, the adult years that were so, um, where, where death was so much more present, but it was those early years. Okay, that, that's a very good point. Uh, I had never heard that before. So, but that, that brings us to, I wanted to quick get a few of the bourgeois sort of counter arguments, and then we can get into the artwork. And the, I'll link it below for the viewers. There was uh, a number of responses when Crisis Magazine republished this article from Dawson. And one of the ones I saw was essentially the, the, the greatest, um, it, let, me, let me say this first. Um, it's very important that when we compare things, we make a fair comparison. And I think that the, to be fair, you need to compare, like, for example, I, I speak a lot about uh, Greek Orthodoxy versus Roman Catholicism. And this, you see this all the time where you need to compare the best of Catholicism with the best of Orthodoxy. And then you compare the worst of Catholicism with the worst of Orthodoxy. So when you compare best with best and worst with worst, that's a fair comparison because people often will take the best of one compared with the worst of the other. And that's just not fair uh, unless there's some other factor in play. But I, I think that the, to my, to my knowledge, the best argument for the bourgeois sort of society that, that's been created, especially since 1700 and 1800, especially, is the development of technology and medical technology, which allows infant mortality, as you mentioned, to be very low in bourgeois countries. Uh, whereas in other countries of the world today, there still is a large infant mortality. Um, and the innovation of the technology through the merchant class, essentially, to redistribute and, and connect the, the farmer who's producing food with the poor who are starving and hungry. So the which which is enabled through uh, innovation and technology and free market competition and that type of thing. And that seems to be the best argument that I've seen for sort of the bourgeois mind, uh, which states and this was precisely this gentleman's argument against Dawson was, was actually he started with just saying, do you want your neighbor to starve? Essentially, you don't want him to starve. You want to create a bourgeois society so your, your neighbor can have uh, food. So, um, Peter, what do you say to that argument uh, against the Baroque culture? Yes, yeah, so it's interesting that Dawson's essay has the ability to arouse controversy all these decades onwards, I think that that uh, indicates that it, it is clearly resonating with, with things that um, we, we know are uh, germane concerns. The, uh, there, there is um, a comparison um, that can be made between 
the Protestant Revolution and the French Revolution uh, between Southern Europe, broadly speaking, Baroque culture, Northern Europe, Protestant Europe, bourgeois culture. Similarly, in the New World between Latin America and North America, with the exception of, of Quebec. And this offers us an opportunity to compare the achievements, the, the relative achievements of those two civilizations. And it is true that the, the Protestant bourgeois civilization can claim um, superiority in achievements in two main areas, which you've identified, those being sort of science and commerce. Uh, I, I don't think anyone is seriously um, saying that uh, Protestant culture um, surpassed the, the Baroque civilization in, in material culture, uh, in, in art, um, but in, in those two areas. And um, there, there is uh, some truth to that. It's, it's a variation on uh, Max Weber's famous thesis of the Protestant work ethic. Why He asked, why is it that Northern Europe uh, tended to be wealthier than Southern Europe, Northern America uh, wealthier than, than Southern America. Um, and I think that, uh, well, we see things from this side of the French Revolution. We've got to examine the, the, the epoch of, of, of uh, which we're speaking, the, the 17th and 18th century, uh, from their own vantage points. And if you do that, um, you and I are both um, uh, quite familiar with the work of Henry Sear and his book Phoenix and the Ashes, which is really superb uh, regarding this period. And he points out the, the uh, marked scientific um, and economic achievements of places like um, Baroque Spain, the 17th century, um, the, the, uh, the incredibly impressive uh, efforts at economic regulation, um, that emerge from um, somewhere like the School of Salamanca, for example, is, is really um, innovative and, and groundbreaking. Um, having said that, you do have capitalism basically arising in its modern form in the uh, Dutch Republic, in, in a Protestant, the, the prototypical bourgeois culture, which does bring significant wealth to uh, that people. I think if you're going to say that that the a bourgeois culture, a Protestant culture, brings greater overall wealth, um, that might than a, than a, a Catholic Baroque culture, that might be the case. Um, I wouldn't sort of reflexively dispute that necessarily. Um, but man doth not live on bread alone, and the question is not does uh, bourgeois culture lead to uh, a wealthier society, but also does it lead to a, a more just society? Does it lead to a, a more beautiful society? Um, do, does it lead to a more charitable society? And what you see is uh, a lesser degree of concentration of wealth in the Baroque nations um, and a, a, general, a generally better condition of the poor than, among, than in uh, Protestant countries. I'll give a couple of examples. Um, in Germany, which was, you know, a nation or a people, it wasn't a nation, but it was a, a people that was divided by the uh, Protestant Revolution. In Prussia, which was the 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 leading um, 
Protestant power, particularly in the 18th century, the, the serfs were treated incredibly badly by the, the Junker class, the, the warrior class there, where they had the ability, they, they still had the, the sort of privilege to, to whip them, sort of corporal punishment, um, and in, uh, conscript them into the, the army for these incredibly aggressive wars of expansion. And they, they suffered uh, in, on these great Junker estates. Contrast that to southern Germany, which was the uh, Baroque Germany of places like Bavaria, the, the peasant class, um, they, they enjoyed uh, an organic and um, subsidiarist um, life where they, they, by and large, owned their own property uh, or um, uh, worked on a, a noble's land for um, very little labour. Uh, had the right to hand that on to their their uh, descendants, and um, enjoyed the um, the rhythms of many uh, of of the liturgical season and the many holidays and opportunities for recreation that that brought. So I, I think that that's sort of illustrative. Um, another one is that there was a a great um, fashion for amongst Englishmen for what was known as the Grand Tour. I'm not sure if you. You're familiar with that, but the the travels um, where uh, noblemen and uh, people, members of the elite, would tour France and then Italy for particularly for an exposure of, of classical antiquity, and I think it might be Lord Byron who was uh, you know not a um, not a not a, a virtuous figure in it, it really at all, but he did remark about um, how this was in the, the early 19th century, he, he came across Italian towns where the, the, the economic, the, the, the poorest of the poor were completely dependent on the charity of one monastery or one religious order, which just sustained the frugal existence of um, you know, hundreds of people in one town and, and how different this was in his mind from the um, the uh, the parochial poor laws system uh, he was familiar with in England, where the poor were reliant on uh, very meagre um, parish uh, support, and if they couldn't keep up with their debts, they were in the workhouse, and a, a completely inhuman and, and cruel system. So, it, it, I I, th I think that uh, we have to be quite careful. Um, as we are now in, you know, in time of incredible abundance, although interestingly, the, the rate of property ownership, which I would assert is actually the, the true indicator of, of uh, economic justice is, is in decline. Um, but but the, I think you would get a very different picture if you were to uh, compare the, those two cultures um, in, the, in their own time. And then, sorry, one final last example, which is, I think, one of the, the most useful, because it, again, is a comparison of uh, in the same area, which is the Low Countries, where you have the, the Protestant uh, Dutch Republic and then the, the Spanish Netherlands, uh, which becomes the Austrian Netherlands. And in, in a sense, these are both bourgeois cultures, uh, the, the, the Protestant much more so. Uh, but the, the Spanish Netherlands was an incredibly wealthy place. Um, places like Antwerp were mercantile centres. Um, but you have there uh, 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 an integration of the bourgeoisie into 
a Catholic uh, society in a much more harmonious and uh, balanced way, um, whereby the, the bourgeois spirit does not come to dominate the whole of society. Um, and the, um, the great guild halls of Antwerp, for me, bespeak a redeemed bourgeoisie, a Catholic bourgeoisie, where their wealth is put at the service of their neighbor, where they, you know, they supported charitable efforts, hospitals, religious orders, orphanages, um, and um, the, uh, the, the place of the peasant and the noble and, and the, 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 uh, the, the clergy are not um, dismantled or uh, displaced by the money power. Yes, this is all very good points. Thank you, Peter. Um, it seems that there is the, on the one hand, in the bourgeois, the Protestant mind, they remove the Catholic morality regarding money. And it seems that the one of the most important Catholic moral principles that you get in St. Thomas when he's talking about almsgiving is that excess wealth above your station belongs to the poor and so it is unjust to acquire an uh sort of a unlimited um degree of acquisition of wealth forever it's unjust uh at some point even if you're noble and you are supposed to be wealthy because you're noble you need to have more wealth for your nobility at some point you need to sort of draw the line and then you need to give back and that's what's just and so there's a certain uh, St. Thomas says you still own the property. This, this is not a Marxist idea that that um, you sort of um, there's a redistribution of wealth in the sense that there's no property ownership. He says, St. Thomas says you still own the property, but you don't own its use. You have to actually use it a certain way now. Um, so it seems that the, the the love of money is the root of all evil really, really shows itself in the Protestant countries because of the way that they treat their laborers. There's a, there is certainly a overall development that's over hundreds of years that eventually, um, you know, because the Dutch Republic first begins, I think when we look at slavery is when, when we see it most, especially because the Catholic countries also succumbed to the temptation to join in black slavery. And so the French and the Spanish also in the Portuguese engaged in black slavery, but they had these black laws where you had to free your, your, your slaves that you, you birthed, you know, you were um, illicit relations with slave women. You had to free those slaves. You had to educate the slaves. You had to baptize them. You had to catechize them. There were all these huge things that, that uh, protected the slaves in, in theory, they didn't always follow these laws, but in th this type of thing, is is pretty much unheard of among the Dutch and the English. There is really really quite uh, not the same ethic in, in their treatment of slavery. Um, there is instead the uh, pushing of racial ideology, like the curse of Ham, that these people are subhuman, that you know they have to be enslaved. These these types of weird ideas that uh, never really gained prominence with uh, at least the mass of the Catholics, because when everyone gets baptized in the same religion, it's difficult to push on them a racial ideology when the, when the sacraments themselves rebuke that. Um, 
So that's, right. yeah, I think that's very interesting. It, it seems to me that the, the Catholic countries sort of quote unquote develop economically quote unquote slower, mm-hmm. but that's because the love of money is subordinated to the needs of the family and the needs of, mm-hmm. of common good. And so when that's the case, everything happens slower. Whereas in, in the Dutch and English and American we we're going to first enslave everyone, enslave the populace, whether that's actual slavery or wage slavery. And then once everyone gets rich, then we'll go off and enslave people in China and Mexico. And then everybody here will be rich. So it's just kind of a transfer of the slavery in my mind. And I think what's, what's really interesting is that we will certainly concede that there were very altruistic businessmen in Protestant countries, you know, very pious Anglicans or pious Puritans who really actually cared about their workers, of course. But the weird thing is that these people are not the people seen that seem to be in the historical record. They're not the notable people. They're not the people, you know, that, that Protestant history lifts up and says, wow, look at these great businessmen. Uh, it seems that they lift up the more rapacious and more greedy and more ambitious characters who are less, you know, caring. It, it, would you, what would you say to that? Do you think that that's, uh, do I, I've never really heard much about the, these historical figures and I'm sure they existed, but uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, these are some excellent points. Um, yes, there, there are um, notable people within um, the, the Protestant countries who uh, do have a, a, a piety as, as far as, um, the, the, you know, their own, uh, you know, within their own uh, sect uh, can allow and a a desire to improve the the condition of the of the uh, the poor. Uh, this is kind of you know the the social question. Leo the Thirteenth calls it later, and I, I I know a little bit about um, some of the the Quaker and Methodist industrialists in nineteenth century England. Uh, people like um, Cadbury and uh, Roundtree. A lot of them tended, tended to be involved in confectionery, interestingly, so sweetened life in, in many ways. And uh, they, 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 were, they, they built sort of model um, towns for their, their factory workers, which um, had uh, very um, good infrastructure and uh, family homes were not, uh, they, did, they didn't have um, inhuman working hours, they had schools, they had um, institutions for the, the betterment of uh, the labouring classes, education, um, you know, provisions for, for those that, that fall upon destitution. And so, they're, 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 yes, there, there are um, many uh, remarkable uh, individuals who do that. Um, but as you point out, that they are... Um, the exception against the general spirit uh, of, um, of of uh, materialism, um, of a worship of money um, within those cultures, and as I say, within the the organic uh, societies of Baroque culture, um, there is, is there is economic development certainly within human proportion. And so it fulfills one of the three 
um, features of Catholic society that Pope Leo XIII uh, identified, which is organicity. And um, I can't help but sort of, you know, think almost of, as a metaphor of, of a, a, a plant that, uh, or a crop, which um, you, you can grow organically and will provide uh, tremendous nutrition and uh, delicious food uh, and, and proper taste, uh, as opposed to, um, you know, f f uh, intensively farmed, um, uh, genetically modified crops, which will provide fantastic yield and, and you know, abundance of, of, of wealth and, and, and uh, productivity. But eventually you'll get really sick and obese and uh, they'll, they'll, you'll have fast food and, and, and no conviviality around the, the table. And so, you know, that, that's the sort of um, the, the dynamic in a way that you see between uh, an artificial um, productivity and an organic productivity. Yeah, that, that's a very great point, that organicity principle, which is essentially subordinating the love of money to how fast an individual grows of the life, lifehood of a child from zero to eight, I mean, 18 years, 30 years, the growth of the family is very slow compared to economic revolutions that have been pushed on society. So, uh, but we need to get into artwork. So why is it so important to look at artwork when we're discussing this question, Peter? Well, um, the material culture of a civilization is the surest way by which to um, understand the, the, the soul of that culture, the spirit. Um, art presents universals in embodied forms. Um, so I think the, the uh, a story, a poem, a statue, it takes us inside a single experience, inside a particular human heart, but it also leads beyond towards a mystery of, of uh, universal um, significance. Um, and the Baroque material culture, I think it's still true that it's not received sufficient attention in the academy or is even well known enough amongst uh, amongst Catholics. Excellent. Well, um, let, would you like me to set this up now? Um, let me see. Are you ready for the first slide in this thing? Yes, I am. Yes, it should, it should be a painting Excellent. by uh, Caravaggio, The Calling of St. Matthew. There it is. Excellent. Um, so just to just to preface um, this, um, I'm going to um, analyze and uh, talk about three works of Baroque art. And uh, I'll try to be um, um, relatively descriptive as well for, for perhaps um, those uh, listeners who, who are just listening on, on audio. Um, but the reason I chose these, these three works of art, that those being um, The Calling of St. Matthew by Caravaggio, um, The Ecstasy of St. Teresa by Gian Lorenzo Bernini, a sculpture, and then the Pilgrimage Church of Devis um, in, uh, in Bavaria um, by the Zimmerman brothers, um, is that they, I think, give us a, a, a quite a, um, a helpful sort of sweep of the uh, Baroque epoch with um, the early Baroque in, in, in Caravaggio's painting, high Roman Baroque in Bernini's sculpture, and then late Baroque, or what uh, is also called Rococo, um, in the Pilgrimage Church of Devise. Um, so to, to begin with um, uh, the calling of St. Matthew by uh, Caravaggio. Uh, Caravaggio is very popular. 
Uh, he's got a he's 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 uh, has an enduring reputation quite quite rightly. Um, he was truly one of those painters that uh, transformed uh, art uh, as a whole. Um, and you see to this day his influence in modern cinematography. Uh, Pier Paolo uh, Pasolini, Martin Scorsese, they, they've all credited his influence um, because, as you can see from this painting, his art is, um, is incredibly uh, dramatic and it is made from darkness and light. Um, he presents these spotlit moments of extreme, uh, often agonized human experience and spiritual drama with this incredible force uh, and a deep sense of humanity. So he, he, he endows his theological subjects with uh, real human feeling, which is the, the marriage that constitutes the Baroque. Um, so in this, uh, this painting, The Calling of St. Matthew, it's, it's one of two very large paintings of, um, uh, uh, that, were, that were commissioned for the uh, Contour, Contarelli Chapel in San Luigi dei Franceschi, the, the, uh, the, French, uh, the French ambassador's church in, in Rome. And it's still in situ, which is, which is wonderful. Um, one, one can see it as it was uh, intended to be um, displayed. And uh, Caravaggio, when he received this commission, was relatively inexperienced at this time. This is uh, 1599, so after the Council of Trent and the beginning of the, the Baroque period. Uh, and it's on it's on a monumental scale. This this picture is uh, covers the whole side wall of a of a chapel. Um, so so in this painting, uh, we see our Lord uh, calling uh, the tax collector Matthew um, from his his occupation to become one of his disciples. And um, you can see Caravaggio imagines this calling taking place in a, a dingy room. Um, in, in a modern Rome, in a Rome of his own time. And Christ and then St. Peter have, have just entered the dim and uh, the, the plainly furnished office of Matthew, the tax collector. You see coins on the table, a money bag, an open account book, and an inkwell with a uh, protruding quill. So it's in the middle of a transaction taking place. And the painting revolves on contrasts. You see Matthew and his companions are dressed in this sort of foppish uh, 16th, 17th century finery, but Christ and the, the solemn figure of St. Peter are, are barefoot and they wear simple, timeless, biblical garb. Um, so they, they belong to a different play, time and place, a different moral and spiritual universe, which is on intruding on contemporary Rome. Uh, so here, here's the, the very, very short uh, biblical account that... Uh, that Caravaggio is inspired by. It's Matthew uh, chapter nine, verse nine. Uh, and as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. So this is the exact moment at the heart of this biblical narrative. When Christ has just spoken his simple two word command, uh, and Matthew is, is astonished, but he's also compelled. And he's pointing to his chest as if to say, who, me? And he's gazing into the eyes of his saviour. Um, he's even absentmindedly counting out one last coin of the taxpayer's change. 
but his le- his legs already embra- braced, ready to stand up and step into his new existence. And our Lord is fixing the tax collector with an intense stare. His command is irresistible. Its outcome is inevitable. Um, and you can see that even as Christ is reaching out towards Matthew, his bare feet are turned away from the company of men uh, back towards the outside world. Um, so the, the gloomy office is a, is, is a cast, uh, has a cast of these sort of mercenary characters. It's clear it's a sort of seedy den of iniquity. But Christ is calling Matthew out of, you could say, the bourgeois world, the, the world of the administrator, to a greater adventure. He's bringing light into the darkness, just as he brings illumination and divine purpose into Matthew's heretofore dreary, money-grubbing uh, existence. And you could say that the, the grouping around the table sort of resembles a profane version of the Last Supper. Um, the, the young man to the left of Matthew, counting his change, is still oblivious to the call of Christ. And he's clutching a bag of money in his left hands. So he, he sort of recalls Judas with his 30 pieces of silver. And, and uh, Christ is calling Matthew from the uh, world of, of Judas's uh, to the adventure, the adventure of the Baroque. And the light flashes onto the face of Matthew along a diagonal parallel with the line traced by Christ's outstretched hand. Um, so it's, it's, it's the light of mundane reality, but it's also the light of God. It corresponds to the light in Matthew's soul. Um, so, Timothy, I, I'd like to ask, is there a, a detail in this painting that uh, is at all familiar? Is there anything reminiscent here of uh, one of the great works of the High Renaissance? Oh, that, that's very interesting you say that. I, I wish I was more uh, cultured in, in Renaissance painting to, to say. Uh, it certainly has the uh, sort of the flair of that um, in the figures uh, around the table, but I, I sorry, I, t- I can't tell. Uh, well, yes, you're absolutely right. Yes, the perspectival mastery of the Renaissance uh, is, is present. You skip onto the next slide, that, that okay. might be able to help you because that detail is slightly shadowed. Um, but but we can see here, if you look at the hand that Christ holds out to Matthew, um, you can see that it is a direct copy, a paraphrase of one of the most celebrated images in the whole of Western art, which is the uh, which is from Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel ceiling, a detail from the creation of Adam. Ah, uh, yes. You see now, so I do, Caravaggio yes. has given Christ, but it's interesting. He's given Christ not the hand of of God, but the hand of Adam in a mirror form. Um, so he's, I think he's, he's, uh, he's expressing here that, that Christ is a second Adam, is the second Adam. He's in God's image, but he's free from sin, calling Matthew to his redemption. So that, that is uh, the calling of St. Matthew, a wonderful, wonderful work. Excellent. Yeah. You, I, I'm, I, it's it's just stunning. Uh, it's so moving. Uh, really cuts to the heart. I mean, it's remarkable how this artwork can really move you, just by looking at these. And 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 thank you for your excellent commentary on its meaning. Uh, the light especially strikes me. Um, 
as so powerful in this moment. Um, excellent. Thank you. Uh, would you yes. like, would you yeah, like, as, as, uh, yes, if you could, if you could, uh, move on uh, okay, to the ahead. next slide. Um, yes, as, as, as Plato, um, said, uh, beauty, true beauty pierces us. It wounds us. And, uh, I think you see that poignancy in this next work as well. Um, this is a, a great masterpiece of sculpture. So the Baroque period, if you imagine, has has taken root and it is now flowering in this uh, this period. Um, St. Peter's has been uh, rebuilt. Uh, the the uh, the new religious orders, such as the Jesuits, have been founded to to reconquer uh, the Christendom um, for for the true faith the uh, Protestant heretics being pushed back in country after country. And there is a, 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 a renewed confidence in um, the, uh, the true, true religion in Christianity. Um, so at, at this period, we have um, the, the genius of uh, the sculpture, Gian Lorenzo Bernini. Um, and this is his statue, The Ecstasy of St. Teresa. It's also in Rome. It's in the Santa Maria della Vittoria Cornaro Chapel. And um, this was uh, sculpted between 1645 and 1652. This is the period of the High Baroque. And this uh, sculpture for me, the reason why I chose to uh, examine this work of art is because it is the embodiment of the Baroque spirit in marble. This is meta-baroque, if you like. Um, it, it is uh, the embodiment of the, the essence of the baroque, which is the passionate love affair between the human soul and its creator, God. And we see here um, a rendering of the ecstasy of one of the, the greatest saints of the Counter-Reformation, St. Teresa of Avila, um, and the, uh, the, the, uh, the account is very famous uh, in her biography, The Life of Teresa of Jesus, where she, um, the, 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 the supreme moment of her life when she has an experience of religious ecstasy. And uh, I, will, I will quote from that. Uh, she writes, I saw in his hand a long spear of gold and at the iron's point there seemed to be a little fire. He appeared to me to be thrusting in at times into my heart and to pierce my very entrails. When he drew it out, he seemed to draw them out also and to leave me all on fire with the great love of God. The pain was so great that it made me moan, and yet so surpassing was the sweetness of this excessive pain that I could not wish to be rid of it. The soul is satisfied now with nothing, nothing less than God. The pain is not bodily but spiritual though the body has its share in it. It is a caressing of love so sweet, which now takes place between the soul and God, that I pray God of his goodness to make him experience it, who may think that I'm lying. So this sculpture um, is, is sort of, is in a, a niche under a hidden window. So it allows natural light to bathe the sea um, and then reflect off those golden rods you see above. Uh, representing heavenly light. Um, so here you have a profoundly religious experience, but it's also quite naturalistic. It's bringing the best of the Renaissance there. 
Um, he's captured Benini uh, many different passions and emotions in a single piece, uh, that pain and pleasure of which uh, St. Teresa writes. Um, and you see the, the, the light, the naturalism, the dynamism that make this sculpture truly representative of the Baroque, uh, the Baroque period. Um, and if you uh, move on to the next slide, we can see this statue in situ more clearly and how um, if you if you see to the left and the right those figures in the the sort of uh, illusionist balconies are, are gazing at this this scene of ecstasy in, in wonder and there are you know several um, emotions and responses rendered by Benini there and it's almost as if um, the the composition is is of a, a theatre and uh, this has been called theatrum sacrum holy theatre and that that is really at the heart of Baroque art, um, the, the visual representation of salvation, which includes, you could say, theatrical effects to evoke emotional uh, responses in the, in the viewer, uh, amazement or sadness, contrition, joy. Um, and, and it's framed, this ecstasy, in this, in this way. Um, so those, are, those niches hold sculptures of the Coronaro family. Uh, who had donated money for the chapel, um, and they're watching the scene unfold. Um, but uh, the, the art historian Rudolf Wittkoer called this arrangement a sort of separation of two worlds. On the one hand, the material world of the spectators. On the other, the mystical experience of religious ecstasy of St. Teresa. Excellent. So, Next slide. One, yes, please. Okay. So this is just a slightly more detailed uh, image to emphasize the unparalleled technical skill uh, in the rendering of the drapery um, from Carrera marble is, uh, is, is sublime. And uh, Gian Lorenzo Bernini was virtuoso, uh, precocious talent, um, I can't quite remember how old he was when he sculpted this, but he was sculpting uh, sculptures very much uh, as, as well rendered in his uh, late teens and early 20s. Um, so it, it, he, he really was uh, a genius, uh, I think, in the on the same level as Il Divino, Michelangelo. Um, and uh, it's worth just, just uh, ending on the, on the, um, the words of St. Teresa herself. She said that we did not come here to seek rewards in this life, but only in the, the life to come. Let our thoughts always be fixed upon what endures and not trouble ourselves with earthly things which do not endure even for a lifetime. And her own life uh, is, was fueled by this passion uh, to, to strive for nothing less than Christ and her achievements um, endured uh, and and gave great fruits to the church, uh, at least 17 convents before she died and a great reform of the uh, the Carmelite order. Excellent. That uh, very much sums up the whole question we're trying to discuss here on a spiritual level. So now we have the 
pilgrimage church of the scourge savior uh is that Vieskirch? that how you spell yes, it Vieskirche. Um, so the, the, the full name is the Pilgrimage Church of the Scourge Saviour. Um, we'll, we'll see why in a minute. But the, the sort of informal name is the Wieskirche. Wies is German for meadows. Um, so as you can sort of see in this picture I took when I visited, uh, the, the, the church is situated amidst the meadows, uh, an area of real natural beauty. Um, so it is the church in the meadows. Um, and... Um, what you what 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 we're going to see here is the uh, supreme example, uh, the paradigmatic example of the Rococo style, um, which is taking us forward into the mid 18th century. So it is a time of the in many parts of Europe, the decay of Baroque civilization, with notable exceptions, one of those being the society of uh, Bavaria uh, and uh, the Catholic German speaking lands. Um, and the Rococo has long had kind of negative connotations. Um, Hauser, he, there's, a, there's a, a writer, Arnold Hauser, who, who said it's the art of a frivolous, tired and passive society, a last expression of a disintegrating ancien regime. And um, Diderot, that uh, infamous revolutionary uh, in his encyclopedia calls Baroque, a nuance of the bizarre, that of the ridiculous carried to excess. Um, but he was much more familiar with French Rococo. Uh, but what we're going to see here is German Rococo, which uh, is, is very different in um, advancing into the religious sphere. And I, I just want to uh, add in real quick here. I'm, real, I'm glad you brought in the German Rococo because this is actually at the heart of the Americanism controversy in the late 19th century because it's all these Germans who are coming from the German Catholic lands who are being suppressed by Bismarck and they're fleeing to America. And then, so they're coming from this world. This is the world they're coming from. They're coming to America. They're sluttling in places in the Midwest, like Minnesota. And they're coming into conflict with these Irish Catholics who want to make everything into a machine, uh, you know, machinized, uh, mechanized sort of, you know, the Irish never had this type of civil, they didn't have the freedom to create something like this. So they're the ones who are coming in conflict with the Germans, Americans who had this life. So I think that's an interesting context to bring into that whole controversy. Uh, but please continue. You want, me the, you want the next slide here? Yes, please. Okay. Yes, it's very interesting what you say about the American experience. I think because America, particularly in the 19th and early 20th century, was this mosaic of the European peoples, um, off, offers a, a sort of um, uh, very interesting um, case of the interaction between many different cultures in quite a concentrated way. Um, so I'll just say a little bit about the, the culture of 18th century Bavaria and how it had these fairly unique conditions which um, allowed for the culture of the Rococo to thrive. Um, and um, it's worth mentioning that um, Bavaria, uh, following well, and Germany as a whole, following the Thirty Years' War, the devastation of that time, uh, uh, after a hundred years, it had really um, arrived at a time of prosperity and peace, um, and uh, but maintained in in Catholic Germany uh, the the organic Christian social order, um, and these conditions made Bavaria inhospitable 
to the secularizing tendencies of the Enlightenment, which you were seeing in uh, France in particular, but even to an extent in, in Spain, Portugal, Italy as well. Uh, but in Bavaria, there was no vigorous middle class. There was no uh, uh, dominating bourgeoisie. There were cities, but for the most part, they remained small and proportional to, uh, to the uh, human spirit. Uh, and Henry Sear calls this society the last place in Europe where we can observe the natural development of a Catholic society. Um, so this was a land of, of peasants, a land of peasants and priests and nobles. Um, there was a Protestant who visited Bavaria in 1785, and he, he said that it felt like the clock had been turned back 150 years. When travellers came into southern Germany from Italy, the, the number of calvaries and shrines that sanctified the road actually increased as one crossed the Alps. And um, this was a landscape in which the church, especially the monasteries, the cloister, uh, still dominated the economic and cultural life of the country. More than half of the land was in its possession. And most of the parish priests and so, uh, quite a few of the monks were of peasant stock. Um, but I think what you can see in these pictures and what is really, really important uh, is that I can think of very few places where the distance between folk art, which you see here, and then high art, which we're going to see in uh, De Wieskirche, is so small. In fact, they're, they're nearly the same thing. They're, this split uh, between high and popular art um, is a result of uh, the, the urban and courtly art of the Renaissance and then the, the bourgeois neoclassicism that follows this, uh, this, this era. Um, this rift between popular and high art with us today. But in the Bavarian Rococo church, you have an integration as because of the, the church, which unites all uh, elements of society into one social organism. And um, so these charming murals uh, you can see are in uh, the village of Oberammergau and uh, Wittenwald's uh, Oberammergau famous for its, its passion play to this day. Um, and Edmund Burke wrote, it is not easy to find or to conceive governments more mild and indulgent than these church sovereignties. Uh, and then a German contemporary, Baron Riesbach, wrote that in these states, these Catholic German states, they know nothing of the heavy taxes under which the subjects, the temporal princes, so heavily groan. And the work of the beautiful pilgrimage churches, which, which adorn the landscape, which crown this culture are the work of local craftsmen who were part of peasant society. You have somewhere like Vesebrun, a village dominated by a Benedictine monastery, and the, there was a, a scarcity of land. So the monastery encouraged many of its subjects to become masons and stuccoers, sculptors, and then employed them and helped them secure commissions. Um, and uh, the, the Zimmermans, uh, who were the, uh, the artists responsible for the Wieskirche, uh, all came from this, this, this one village. Uh, Zimmerman means carpenter. So if you uh, move on to the next slide, we can see here uh, the miraculous statue of the scourged Christ, which was the object of the pilgrimage for which the Wieskirche, the church in the meadows, was built. Um, just briefly to, to um, 
uh, expose you the origins of this statue. Uh, it was in 1730 that uh, the abbot of Steingarten, um, who was introducing Good Friday, Good Friday procession into the area, needed an image of the flagellated Christ for that procession. And they, they pieced together quite a rudimentary uh, statue of, uh, of the flagellated Christ um, from various bits from people's attic. And um, it, was, it was used uh, just as a sort of, it was believed as a temporary uh, statue for that procession. And then it was given to a local innkeeper. And um, it, his cousin was a, a peasant woman, Maria Lowry, who lived an hour's distance from Steingarten, where the, the uh, monastery was, in Davies, in the, in the meadow. Um, and she asked to, to have the statue and found uh, a month later tears uh, running down our Lord's face. And um, word spread about this miracle. And there was a chapel built in um, Vis, uh, where there were soon reported miraculous cures, word spread, and um, the uh, pilgrims began flocking to the area to venerate the holy image. Um, and many sick or crippled pilgrims were, were healed. Um, so um, this created um, uh, an opportunity and uh, incentive for the, the abbot of Steingarten to commission um, a, a suitable uh, church for um, this, this statue for the pilgrims um, in the then prevailing Rococo style in the 1740s. Um, so notice how the the style um, is uh, is utilised um, because of the intense peasant piety uh, in that in that society and culture. So if you could, yeah, I I love the um, the story of these saints during this so the age of false reason and the scientific revolution. Yes, exactly. Yes. Or the not the saints, but the miracles, yes. Yes. Um, yeah, away from the um the, the world of the, the salon and the uh the university and and um, and rationalism and, and materialism that was uh growing at this time, uh you still had um cultures which were conformed to the to the gospel. Um and this is the interior of of the Wieskirche. So contrast that to the very simple uh, white exterior and inside is the most extraordinary joyful exuberance um, as we look up to uh, to the vault and you can notice the only area of darkness really in this picture is just just under the high altar is the niche in which the flagellated Christ is uh, is set and um, in these Rococo churches, what you have is, is painting, sculpture and architecture almost lose their separate identities and flow into a riotous, light-filled ensemble. Um, the Rococo is a development of the Baroque. It's an organic development, but it is, I think, a, a, enough of a separate uh, or distinct period style um, of its own. What you have is... Um, a, a, a retreat from the, the weightiness of the Baroque in its sort of architectonic uh, forms 
and um, a, a play with the the devices of the uh, of the Baroque architecture, with the use of asymmetry and ornament um, to, to express uh, this this joy. Um, so yes, this this is uh, to the Bavarian people. Um, this art celebrates the gaiety and joyousness of redemption. Uh, Henry Sear says that nowhere does the Baroque express the joyousness of Catholic faith more exuberantly in sumptuous fantasy and proclaim the nature of religion as celebration. Um, I, I think it's just worth saying that no single generation of Christian artists has been able to express the beauty of the, of the faith all at once. Um, you have in the face of the majesty of God in the, you have awe in the face of the majesty of God in the Romanesque era, the mystic ascension to heaven of the Gothic cathedral, the clear light of the insight of God uh, seen in, in the light infused building of buildings of the Renaissance, and then the, the simple paintings of the, uh, the Nazarenes. And I think this corresponds to, to, uh, to heaven, uh, where our Lord says, uh, in my father's house, there are many mansions. So the Rococo declares the joy of the Christian as the main subject of its, me of its message, the, the joy of the redemp redemption and the joy of the baptized as a son of God. Um, so you have the, uh, the ornamental treatment that's lifting the weight of the architecture um, and the uh, mediation of the tension between architecture and picture. Uh, as as a, a very important function of Rococo. So the, the Zimmerman brothers, um, Johann Baptist Zimmerman and Dominicus Zimmerman, uh, were respectively uh, a Stuckerist and an architect. And you can see the, the fruitfulness of their close collaboration on this, this masterpiece. Um, and uh, the fresco appears like a hole cut into the vault. Um, permit, permitting us to glimpse the heavenly world, the heavenly realm, um, not as a, a second world, but as the extension of our world into heaven. So it has this, this dramatic effect um, that is unified. And if you could move on to the next slide, uh, it's a slightly different angle that just uh, uh, presents um, uh, the, the vault. Uh, and the fact that movement is required um, as a, it, it, to, to, to experience, the, to register the full uh, artistic, aesthetic, religious meaning of the, uh, of, of the work. Um, and you see through this that the Wieskirche presents salvation as a process, one that unfolds metaphorically as the pilgrim moves through the interior. The Rococo is all about movement. Uh, it's it's uh, manifest in the church's rokai ornamentation um, and the incitement to move to different points, which which represents the the human's movement towards the divine uh, through the treasury of the the church's sacramental uh, to the the treasury of the church's sacraments. Um, and if you move on to the next slide, you have um, a picture I took of the the vault and the, the main fresco, the fresco of the last judgment. Um, now, I don't know uh, what your impressions are, Timothy, but for me, this was one of the most cheerful, uh, 
judgment frescoes that uh, one, one can really imagine. That's true. Um, the, there is really no sign of the, uh, the torments of the damned, for example, in this uh, composition. Um, and the, the Last Judgment was a very, very common um, subject uh, for the ch- churches in this period and through the medieval period as well. Um, they're known as a doom painting in England. Um, but in these churches, the faithful, this is what uh, Alan, uh, Kenneth Clark said, said in these Rococo churches, the faithful are persuaded not by fear, but by joy. And um, you can see here in this fresco, um, two angels with, with open books uh, and the trumpeter angels below the end of the rainbow uh, tell us that the throne rising above the choir arch, which is at the bottom of this, this picture, uh, is the throne of the last judgment. But the judge himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, has not yet descended from the rainbow. Um, so the, the rainbow is the, the, uh, the, the sign of God's covenant, um, showing that there is still time. There is still time for repentance, for redemption. Um, and as I said, uh, representations of last judgment traditionally oppose this glory of heaven to the torments of the damned, the, the damned, but this is absent in Davies. Um, and that's to say that the judgment has not yet been made. It is, it is communicating to the pilgrims that there still is time. And this is um, the, the sanctuary and the ambulatory. So the, the church has an, an oval elliptical design so that the pilgrims can move around the nave uh, to the, the, uh, the statue of the flagellated Christ uh, to venerate it while Holy Mass is being celebrated. And um, you, you, you find that Davies is full of these these lovely, charming surprises. Uh, you have the different arms of the ambulatory move into the, the, the apse. Um, and if you move on to the next slide, um, this is the approach. Um, so you, you see there the openings of the, the cartouche, the three cartouche at the top of the pillars correspond to three frescoes on the opposite wall. They're, they are moving frames for the art. Uh, so they, they depict individual moments from the life of our Lord, um, of his mercy and charity towards the suffering, uh, the sick, the deaf, the paralyzed, the raising of Lazarus. But they're not uniformly visible from any single point. They, must, they have to be observed while you move. Uh, so, so the, the, uh, the Wieskirche, um, very cleverly, the Zimmermans, uh, have used the fourth dimension of time for for the message to unfold, and uh, yeah, these are um, some votive tablets. I, I love these, uh, which um, bespeak the the uh, the Baroque piety and the continued piety uh, of, you know, of these Catholics, um, and. They, the the uh, the interior of Wieskirche could not look more redeemed. Uh, one one um, writer described it as God's ballroom, and uh, the church has always been aware of this this joy. It's expressed in our liturgy, but I think in the art of Southern German Rococo, um, it is it is very very um, 
marvelously expressed. So are these what pilgrims have made in Thanksgiving of a miracle? Is that what this is? Yes. Yeah, these votive tablets. Beautiful. Excellent. Uh, Would you like me to... is that uh, any more comments? Yes, that's the, the that's the end of okay. the uh, the the presentation of the um, excellent the the three baroque works of art. Um, and and thank you for allowing me to uh, speak a little bit on those. Uh, that was wonderful. I think um, especially in, from in America at least, and perhaps there. I, I don't know. I, I'm curious to ask you in England or in Europe. Has there been a lot of iconoclasm? in churches um as there has in america at least there's been a, a just a a fury I, I, there's no other way to say it there's there's perhaps that's rel- a relative term to the actual fury of bloodshed with iconoclasm in the past but there was a great fury uh in many of our churches that destroyed so much art whitewashed it like the Mohammedans did the hagia sophia and whatnot so has there been a lot of iconoclasm in England and, and Europe in after the Second Vatican Council? Um, yes, there has. Very sadly, um, I, the uh, the Dutch refer to the the Reformation as uh, or part of a feature Reformation as the um, the Bildensturm, which means the statue storm, because. The uh, the Calvinists would uh, would ransack and desecrate the churches, smashing the the faces of the statues of the the saints uh, and and of our Lord. Um, and uh, they call the period after the Second Vatican Council the Zweiter Bildungsturm, the Second Statue Storm. Except this time, the Catholics did it to themselves. And in England, the 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 experience of the Catholic is one of a deep melancholy, generally surrounded by Anglican uh, churches, which were taken from us. Uh, We were disinherited and the Eucharistic life uh, is no longer present. So they are incredibly beautiful, but they're also incredibly dry and lifeless in a way. The great uh, English cathedrals have had by and large have had their stained glass removed, their statues, their paintings, their, the colour has been drained. Um, and then to add to that trauma is the trauma of um, uh, the, the, uh, the iconoclasm of the, the uh, post-conciliar period. Um, I am familiar with an example of a church here in London where the in the 19... 19- 80s I think um, the I, I, I can't be sure if it was Franciscans but anyway the the, uh, the parish priest uh, went on a uh, pastoral liturgy course in Rome and came back and attacked the statues of the saints in this church with hammers and literally whitewashed um, the the beautiful artwork uh, that adorned uh, that church, which was only recently uncovered when they they chipped away at this uh, uh, this thing. So so uh, I see that as uh, satanic, and um, the the I've 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 met some of the the priests that were responsible 
for this this barbarism. Um, and I think that's the fact that they are still with us is is a big reason why it can't it hasn't been dealt with yet um, because um, they you know, they are often the the people in positions of uh, ecclesial power. Yeah, it it very much seems to me that this stems from a bourgeois attitude towards the holy sacrifice of the mass in the sense that it's essentially a protestantization in the in in the idea that we need to make all of the emphasis on reading the scriptures and 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 educating people with an in on a purely sort of intellectual level we need more reading of the scriptures uh essentially it sort of becomes more adult focused it's focused on the adults you know when you send it bring a child to a protestant service it's all uh you know all sort of the preaching of the word there's no beauty um there's no statuary and that type of thing but i i, what, I think what's really tragic is that you know the as we as you just saw with these votive offerings the poor and the the widow and the orphan and the you know the uneducated class whatever what have you you know, these are the these are the people that are really moved by uh, these great works of art and these great things. And, you know, when you whitewash everything and then you just read from a uh, some kind of you have sort of an intellectual discourse for 45 minutes, you know, that is not as impactful for uh, the little ones among us, as if you will. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so Henry Sear um, writes um, quite um, lucidly on this about how the the Novus Ordo is, in a sense, a bourgeois liturgy. Um, it is it is um, it is egalitarian in a sense. Uh, it is it, it can be banal, and it is the fruit of a committee of a of a rationalistic conception of uh of worship and rationalism is very much tied to the bourgeois spirit the idea that you can um abstract principles um from the intellect uh, and then impose those principles on uh, on reality, um, despite the vicissitudes of place, of culture, of history, of tradition, uh, of custom, and um, simply through the the through power, um, bring about some kind of transformation, some sort of utopic transformation. Uh, to conform to your own uh, ideological uh, conceits. Yeah, I think that very much contrasts the pastoral nature that we might call the Council of Trent, for for example, a very pastoral council, if there ever was one, um, with a very sort of machine engineering approach. Uh, We're just going to engineer a machine from on high. We're going to make up this great plan. We're going to go into committees and, and... produce a document that's you know 400 pages of documents and then we're going to impose those on the people and then out of that will be a utopia that's it yes 
Yeah. Uh, any final concluding thoughts, uh, Peter? Thank you very much for all of your presentation, Baroque. It's been a pleasure. Yes, I, I do have some some final um, remarks, and um, well, I, I think that uh, people might be wondering what does this mean for for me and my family today the baroque period has long since ended um well i'd like to just draw us back to christopher dawson and um his original exposition of the baroque and bourgeois spirit so very importantly he's saying that this is not just um a historical uh contrast the baroque and bourgeois spirit uh correspond to a typology of the soul uh, that's what that's what he uh, claims. So I, I, I would like to, uh, if you would permit me, just um, to to read uh, a little section from um, Chris, Christopher Dawson's essay, Catholicism and the Bourgeois Mind. Um, and this is what he writes. Um, quote, it is indeed impossible to find a more complete example in history of the opposition of Sombart's two types, those being the erotic type and the bourgeois type. Uh, just quickly to, to, to interject, uh, by, by, uh, we, we think of eros meaning just sex, but actually in its true sense in the Greek term, uh, it means the, the fervent desire to reach excellence uh, in, in all aspects of life. Uh, it's a powerful longing. Um, so that, that's what he means by the erotic type. So the, the Baroque is, is truly uh, of the erotic type. Uh, he says, um, uh, it's impossible to find a more complex, complete example in history of that contrast than the culture of the Counter-Reformation lands with that of 17th century Holland and 18th century England and Scotland and North America. The Baroque culture of Spain and Italy and Austria is the complete social embodiment of Sombart's erotic type. It is not that it was a society of nobles and peasants and monks and clerics, which centered in palaces and monasteries, or even palace monasteries like the Escorial, and left a comparatively small place to the bourgeois and the merchant. It is not, not merely that it was an uneconomic culture, which spent its capital lavishly, recklessly, and splendidly, whether to the glory of God or for the adornment of human life. It was rather that the whole spirit of the culture was passionate and ecstatic, and for finds its supreme expressions in the art, uh, in the art of music and in religious mysticism. We only have to compare Benini with the brothers Adam or Saint Teresa with Hannah More to feel the difference in the spirit and rhythm of the two cultures. The bourgeois culture has the me mechanical rhythm of a clock, the Baroque, the musical rhythm of a fugue or a sonata. The ideal of the bourgeois culture is to maintain a respectable average standard. Its maxims are, Honesty is the best policy. Do as you would be done by. The greatest happiness of the greatest number. But the Baroque spirit lives in and for the triumphant moment of creative ecstasy. It will have all or nothings. Its maxims are all for love and the world well lost. What dost thou seek, O my soul? All is thine, all is for thee. Do not take less, nor rest with the crumbs that fall from the table of thy father. Go forth and exult in thy glory hide thyself in it and rejoice and thou shalt obtain all the desires of thy heart. And I know of um, a great uh, Anglo-Italian family in, in London who in my mind um, embody this Baroque spirit in our own time. 
they 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 have an attitude of let your yes be yes and your no be no shoulders to the plow they they feast and they fast they exemplify generosity and liberality um and they have that taste for more that that plus ultra i want more i want more in the sense of, of spiritually it's the continuous movement of uh the soul of of a catholic um and um yes i think that um uh, for me they've been a terrific model um and uh these considerations uh mean that we have to have an anti-egalitarian spirit um the egalitarianism is essentially nihilistic insofar as something has value insofar as it's different or unique and uh we all have our part to play our our, our station in life um and heaven is a court heaven is a is hierarchical heaven is a garden it's a symphony of uh of of beautiful flowers and um uh, I would say that the Baroque spirit, I would go so far as to say, is, is it an antidote to our time? Um, because it, it points us towards the answer, which is abandonment to divine providence. Um, you have this dichotomy between rationalism, the, the, the part of the bourgeois spirit, uh, and realism. And rationalism sees human society like an automaton that you can just abstract from principles, a formula, which will give you a grip on reality at all times. Um, and this is opposed to, to authentic maturity, which is to realize and to discover that you are never really in control. If you just think about a relationship that you have with a person, it's not about control. It's about throwing yourself into a drama and going on an adventure that bestows meaning. And I think that the Baroque um, instantiates in, in matter this way of seeing the world as a relationship, as an adventure. It's expressed in the flowing curves, in the, the buoyant movement, in the fantastic extravagance, the exuberance, the stark contrasts of light and shade. Uh, but it's not meant to intimidate, it, it's meant to delight, um, as opposed to um, the, the bourgeois arts, modern arts, uh, neoclassical art to an extent, uh, which is all about geometric, geometric right angled corners uh, and um, the, these, uh, these rationalistic forms, which is about control. But it's, it actually doesn't give you control. It's actually a cage. If you see the world as a thing or a machine, then you will... You will be frustrated. You will um, you, you will live a frustrated life. Rather, it is to see the world as the Brock does as a relationship between persons. And it's no accident that the high Baroque spirit was manifested and gave birth to the devotion to the sacred heart, which is this, this soteriological catechesis on what our Lord's sacrifice means for the human person that embraces his cross. And uh, the great Baroque saints in Francis de Sales gave us this everyday mysticism, uh, which was part of a great, a larger French school 
um, well, St. Mary Margaret, uh, St. Margaret Mary Alacoque belonged to a religious community founded by St. Francis Sales. And this French school gave us a, 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 a lay spirituality, you know, daily visits to the Blessed Sacrament, enthronement of the Sacred Heart, praying the rosary um, in order to, to, to deal with the prevailing uh, bourgeois spirit of our time. Um, Edmund Burke, um, who, who was not a Catholic or, or may, may well have been a crypto-Catholic, some debate there, um, but he said the most fundamental political action we can take is prayer. And finally, I would like to say that, uh, that the, the, the bourgeois does have its place in a, in a, in a Catholic society. Um, it, is, it is not um, uh, an, a domineering place, uh, but there is uh, a redemption of the bourgeois, which I think one can see in uh, St. Louis and St. Zélie Martin, for example, um, who uh, brought the Baroque spiritual practices um, into the everyday life uh, of uh, their bourgeois family. Excellent. Thank you very much, Peter. That's been very enlightening. I love what you said about abandonment to, to divine providence as the answer, because it, it seems that uh, the machine mind, the engineering mindset, and the love of money truly has made us into a society of voluntarism, where we must impose our will or we do not have human dignity at all. That's what feminism is all about. It's about a woman cannot have her dignity unless she can have power. And, and the same goes for men or the whole racial ideology, the racialism that goes around. If you don't have power, you're not a human being, essentially. Uh, but I think that your answer is, is so acute to the spiritual realities. It is truly abandonment to divine providence and I think uh, the Baroque really gives us a great lesson in how some a, a revolt like the Renaissance and the Protestant revolt can be conquered by the church and, and can be overcome. And, and because we are currently in a revolt time, we are in a sort of a similar in some many ways uh, of a revolt, as we said, an iconoclasm. And so we are living under an iconoclasm. And just as God uh, reconquered in the Baroque and the Counter-Reformation, he also can reconquer once again. So let's offer up in our Father to conclude for that intention, for the, the so the, the, perhaps the new Baroque to arise, uh, that the saints may arise to uh, bring the church uh, into a revival, into a renewal of uh, the gospel and in the Christian family. Let me pull up uh, my favorite Baroque painting. If I could just the... make one, one final point, oh, yeah, okay. just to say, um, uh, uh, just a credit to, um, to my friend, uh, Sebastian Morello. I've, I've uh, interviewed him on my channel um, for, for uh, in, informing me with, with some of those, uh, those thoughts about the Baroque and also to uh, recommend his, uh, his forthcoming book, which will which will examine the problem of rationalism, which is at the root of, of uh, so much of this, um, to to the listeners. Excellent, Sebastian Morello. We can uh, link that below. Uh, send me the link, Peter, if you can, and we'll add that to the show notes here. Now, do you see the crucifix? Is that coming through? Yes, I do. Uh, Diego okay. Velasquez. 
Excellent. Okay. Okay. Let's pray. In nomine Patris et Fidi Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater noster, qui es in cedis, sanctificetur nomen tuum, adveniet regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, sicut in cielo et in terra. Panam nostrum quotidianum da nobis hodie, et dimite nobis debita nostra, sigre nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris, et ne nos inducas in tentationem, sed libera nos amalo. Amen. In nomine Patris, et Fidi, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Amen. Amen.